Father, we're desperate for you this morning, for your spirit to convict the areas maybe we've been hiding in our sin, for the spirit to comfort those of us that have been hurt in tragic ways. God, would this be a morning of hope, even in the midst of looking at the devastating weight of sin? We need you. We need you so much this morning and every morning. Would you meet us in a way that only can be attributed to you? We ask that you would do it. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 11 and uh, part of chapter 12 this morning. So I'm going to read through it. And uh, then we will look at it collectively to see, man, what does this have to say to us? How do we have hope in such a dark story of the Bible? Uh, 2 Samuel, starting in uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read it together. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab his, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Let's stop there just for a second, just to give some cultural context, because I've heard this taught several ways. Um, Bathsheba, who is going to be named in a minute, who's bathing on a rooftop. Rooftops were flat in this culture. Um, this was like a common bathing area. This was not, Bathsheba was not bathing to try and entice David. We even see in the text why she's bathing in a minute. Um, and so just to make that clear, um, she's doing something that's public in the midst of this story. Verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and he said, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and, she lay, and he laid with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she was sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him. A present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go into his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go into his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in Luz, and my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord. He did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab to send it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, send Uriah to the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
Now, verses 15 through 25 are kind of the summary of this back and forth between the general Joab and King David and this, this scene where actually they pull back and Uriah actually dies in the midst of the battle. Let's pick it up in verse 26. It says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became the wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and came to him and said, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little new lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, that he shall restore the lamb fourfold because the thing that he has done, and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house, out of your own house, and I will take your wives before the eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall not die. I have a good friend that... Uh, got introduced to Jesus when he was 12 years old through his karate class of all places. He had a sensei that loved Jesus and introduced him to the person of Jesus and he became a follower of Christ. And as he tells the story about um, one day, he had the opportunity as a green belt to fight against a black belt for the first time. He'd been karate for a while and he was excited about it. And so this Saturday came and my buddy was 12 years old and he got up on the mat against the black belt and he goes, okay, I'm ready. And he gets ready and they square off and they're about to fight. And the black belt comes at him and he's kind of wondering what's gonna happen and all of a sudden the black belt pow, barely taps him in the shin. And my buddy's like thinking in his head as he tells the story, like this is, I was expecting something more dramatic from a black belt, like why, why does he tap me in the shin? And he's like, okay, well, we'll keep going. Next move, the black belt bah, taps him in the shin a little harder. So that's that. Okay, that stings a little bit. Maybe this is his method. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing and what he's up to. And then the next move, the black belt bah, 
kicks him the shin one more time, but it's harder this time, and it really stings. And my body's like, okay, I gotta be ready for this next one, right? So the next time, the black belt goes like this. And my buddy goes like this, the block. And he goes, the black belt, an uppercut is not even a move in karate. <laughs> and he just laid me on my back. And when he talks about that story, he talks about how the enemy uses sin. How our enemy is crafty and deceiving. And what he's going to do is he's going to give you these little jabs and you're going to think it's not that big a deal. You're not going to understand it. And he's setting you up to block so he can lay you on your back. And this is the progression of sin. For all of us on any level. That we would buy into the fact that, oh, okay, because what the enemy will do is he will sacrifice his pawn to take your queen every single time. And you're thinking you're ahead of the game when actually you're behind. And this is what we get to see in the life of David and in our own lives. And so what we're going to do this morning is through the text, we're going to examine how sin works, the progression of sin, the heaviness of sin, but then hopefully we'll get some hope for how do we be aware of those kicks to the shin and move away from them. But then what do we do when we get laid on our back? What does that look like for us in the context of sin? So we're going to look at four steps towards death that we see in this story, that we see in our own story. The first is this, if you're taking notes, the first step towards death is neglecting our duty. Neglecting our duty. This is what we see in the life of David. We see this in verse 1 and verse 2. It says it's in this time that kings would go out to war. David does not go out to war. He has been in the position of power and he's comfortable, and so he doesn't go to war. He just sends everybody to war. Not only that, but in verse 2, the narrator is giving us a clue. He's saying he's been laying around all day. He gets up from his couch. He's been sitting in his bed watching Netflix for like four hours. And you know how you think that's going to give you some relief just to kind of binge and zone out and veg out. And like, but it actually puts you in a worse place in a state of mind when that happens. And this is what's happening to David. He's neglected his duty. Not only has he neglecting his duty go out to war in this moment, but if you've been paying attention at all to the story, we've seen David do unbelievable things. But we start to see his cracks in his character. He gains power, and he doesn't know how to handle that power well because you shouldn't have that much power as a human. What starts to happen is the narrator has been dropping clues to us all along the way, starting at the end of 1 Samuel and now into the beginning of 2 Samuel. As David rises to power, we start to see these clues of neglecting what he ought to do as a king. And the way we see that and the way we're familiar with that is if we go back to Deuteronomy 17... Because Deuteronomy is before the passages we're in. God knows that his people are going to ask for a king, even though he ought to be their king. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 17, giving his people warning of how a king ought to act. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, for who is not your brother? Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, because uh, the people would return 
to Egypt to order uh, and acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return in that way. Verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And so the Lord gives these instructions. Listen, this is your duty. If you're going to be a king and you want to put somebody in this position of king, here's what happens when the power begins to swell and they're going to begin to think they can do. Don't go after horses, which is kind of like don't build your military. Don't go after many wives because it will turn you away. And don't go after silver and gold. Now, this is ironic when we get to Solomon in the next section because this is exactly what Solomon is doing. And so David is neglecting, especially this middle part where he goes after wives for himself. And again, the, the text is clear. It's been dropping us little hints for Samuel chapter 25 in this interaction with Abigail. He takes as his wife. Now, you might think in this part, well, Abigail's husband died and, you know, David's just trying to do the right thing. But we start to see this pattern emerge. Second Samuel chapter 3, David asked for Michal back, his old wife, as kind of this bargaining chip. And what we start to see in David's life is he starts to objectify women. He starts to see women as objects for his power, for his allegiance and his kingdom, for his own gratification. And this is not okay. It's not okay for David. It's not okay for us to objectify women because God is saying, this is your partner that I have given you to help in the creation of the world, to love and care for. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse, thing, for verse 13, another tell is, uh, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Now what the narrator is doing there is very subtle, it's very simple, but he's not saying he took more wives and concubines. He's putting concubines first, and that should alert us to go, what is David doing? He's beginning to objectify women. And so this is a slippery slope. We kind of sometimes read the text and we read the stories if you're familiar. And then we go, David's amazing, David's amazing, David's amazing. And then what happens in chapter 11? He just takes a hard nosedive. And it's like, well, the narrator has been leading. It's been these kicks to the shin all the way up leading to what happens in chapter 11. So the first thing, again, that we see in these steps to death is that David is neglecting his duty. How are you neglecting the duty that God has given you? whether it has to do with your workplace, whether it has to do with your marriage, and you just kind of go, well, I'm not going to really pay attention to that. I'm going to kind of do this thing. And we've been neglecting some of the things that God is calling us to. When we do that, we're on dangerous ground. It's the first step towards death. First step is neglecting duty. The second is indulging our eyes. We see this happen in the story with David. He goes out to the rooftop. He looks over. Text says he sees Bathsheba bathing. And it's not wrong that David saw her. We're going to get bombarded with images all the time. But it's that he stayed in that gaze. And he looked at her. So much so that he recognized that she's beautiful. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't bounce his eyes. He doesn't turn and go back the other way. He stays and he looks at her. Second step to death in this progression of sin for all of us is indulging your eyes. Now, this is the context of something sexually, which we can have all kinds of conversations about, about how to not stay there and indulge our eyes, but it really relates to anything that you're going after other than God. You can sit and indulge your eyes in that remodel of your home, of that kitchen that you're going, oh man, what if, what if I could have that? You can sit and indulge your eyes in your bank account and go, man, I wish it would balloon to this number. 
there's a difference, again, of something coming across your line of sight in your vision and you staying locked in on that thing. Right? Martin Luther said it this way. He said, you can't do anything about a bird flying over your head, but that doesn't mean you let it build a nest in your head. Right? There's going to be things, and advertisers, that, that's how they make their money, is they put these things in front of your eyes as shiny, glittery things that you take a bite on and you don't realize there's a hook on the other end. I have another friend that talks about how this plays out for him as he's trying to eat in a healthy way. And he knows the ice cream is in the freezer. He knows it's in there. And so as he tells the story, he goes, well, like, I'll just go check to see if it's still in there. <laughs> like, maybe one of the kids ate it or my wife ate it. So I'll go up to the freezer and I'll open up the freezer and I'll just, I'll just look at it. I'm not going to eat it. And then I'll close the freezer and I'll go back to my couch and I'll watch TV and then maybe like, you know, the next day comes and I'll just go and look. What ends up happening? He eats the ice cream because he's indulging his eyes. What you look at, you will follow. My wife and I lived in Tucson for uh, our undergrad for college. And then we went back and served there for seven years at the University of Arizona where we worked on campus there. And so when we moved back there, we had a one and a half year old, a five-week-old, and then eventually our third daughter was born in Tucson. And so our kids grew up, spent a lot of time there. And uh, my middle son, Logan, he learned how to ride his bike there. And there was one park where he was four years old. And he had just learned to ride his bike. And so my wife took him with the kids to this park. I think I was out of town at the time. And there was this kind of roundabout. And then there was a playground at the end of the roundabout. Well, there happened to be this prickly pear cactus, like on the roundabout. So my wife's like, okay, Logan, whatever you do when you ride your bike, don't go into the cactus. Stay on this side. You know where the story's going. Stay on this side, and let's ride around to the playground. Well, of course, Logan in his four-year-old brain, he's going, cactus, cactus, cactus. And so what he does is when he's driving around, the, he just starts looking at the cactus. And what happens? His bike, he just goes straight. He just rides his bike straight into the cactus. He comes out. He braces himself. He comes out with over 200 cactus needles in his <laughs> and my wife just with tweezers pulls out every single one when they get back home and everyone ah, ah! this is what happens with our sin if we indulge our eyes if we don't figure out how to step away and realize man this is a kick to my shin and I need to move away I need help moving away and we lock in our eyes on that certain thing we are bound to do those things because of our own flesh the next step to death. Neglecting our duty is number one. The second is indulging our eyes. And even before we get to the third, and in this specific context, again, as I've been having conversations with some of you in the room, specifically women, uh, and asking you, how do you metabolize this story of Bathsheba and David, what David actually does to Bathsheba? And one of our women in the room just said, you know what? Not every woman in the room has been sexually assaulted, but every woman in the room knows what it feels like to be under the gaze of a objectified by a man because of how you look. And so men and women, we just need to do better at this. Like we need to realize like this is an issue. This is again a progression towards destruction. And we think, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. It is. So neglecting our duty, indulging our eyes, number three is abusing our power. This is exactly what we see David doing in this moment. The text says, he asks about her, 
He sees her, he locks his gaze on her, he doesn't walk away, and then he asks about her, he goes to get information about her, and he gets the information he doesn't want to hear. And he chooses not to listen to the information. Isn't that interesting how our hearts are so dark? We can get information back, and it should correct us, but it doesn't correct David. He finds out who she is, and he still moves forward in his progression of sin. He sends for her. Now, sometimes this text is taught and even pocketed in kind of this language of um, David's adultery. Let me speak to this just a minute. And I'm trying to be very careful with my words and kind with my words because I know we have younger ears in the room. And so uh, the, the words I'm choosing to use are not based on trying to soften up the text, but the context of who's in the room right now. I don't believe anywhere that Bathsheba has agency in this text. The king sends for her. You don't say no to the king or you end up dying. And so what I think is happening again is that David is abusing his power. He knows what's right. He doesn't do what's right. He follows this track of sin. And Bathsheba is... It's just not right at all. This idea of adultery, like both parties kind of have a play in this. I, I don't see that anywhere in this text. Anywhere. <clears throat> man, when you get power, it's a sneaky thing, man. It's a kick to the shin. I mean, you think you're fine. And then if you don't have things we're going to talk about on the back end of the sermon, you are headed for a fall. We're not meant to have the power that God has. It's the whole point of not having an earthly king, but God should be our king because we get into these situations, and if we get to have power, we can easily abuse it. And it's the cost of other people, the cost of some of you in the room. It's a step toward death. We neglect our duty. We indulge our eyes. We abuse our power. Number four, we hide our sin exactly what we see David doing in the text. Right? First, he tries to hide it with this plan that he hatches with Uriah coming back. And if Uriah comes back and he actually spends the night with his wife, then everything will kind of go away and it'll be his baby and no harm, no foul. Well, Uriah doesn't go for that. It's so interesting, isn't it, in the text where we've been following the life of Saul and we see the things that Saul is saying and doing even to David and we're going, this dude is toxic. And David seems to be an up upright man of character and loyalty, and in this text, it gets flipped. Everything David is doing and saying, it sounds like Saul, and Uriah sounds like David. He says, no, I'm not going to do this. So David tries to double down on hiding even more, where he goes, okay, well, the next night, I'm going to get him drunk, and then maybe he'll, he'll move towards his wife more easily, and Uriah doesn't do it. So he goes, okay, I'm going to continue down this path, this downward spiral of sin. I'm going to do the worst thing. I'm going to actually send him to the front lines so he'll be killed because he's not doing what I want him to do. And isn't how this works with our sin. It starts to snowball. We start with this kind of white lie that we think, oh, this is no big deal. It's not that, it's not that dangerous. And then it doesn't happen. And then it just compounds and it compounds until destruction happens. Uriah ends up dying. David sends for Bathsheba, and he's hiding his sin. In Proverbs 28, chapter 13, man, this verse will wreck you. If you haven't come across it, it's one of these Bible verses that you're going, ah, I wish I hadn't read that. 
Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his sin, who hides it up, who, care, who, who covers it up, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who, asks, who reveals his sin and confesses his sin will find mercy. He who conceals his sin shall not prosper, but he who confesses it will find mercy. David doesn't do that. He keeps doubling down on hiding his sin. And we see that as, uh, if you're familiar, David kind of writes in his journal in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. So it's kind of his interaction after what happens. And in Psalm 32, 3, he says, when I kept silent, my bones were wasting away. Men and women, do you know that if you have this secret sin that you keep hiding, it's going to affect you physically. Like it's going to eat away at you from the inside. And you might be going, well, like, that's better than, like, bringing it out into the light, because what about the consequences? The way that God has designed it and set it up is for us to confess our sins. Otherwise, it'll eat away at us. Another way we try to hide our sin, again, covering it up, is blame shifting. Right? That's another version of hiding. We see this early on in the garden where Adam goes like, well, it's the woman you gave me. Right? He starts to shift the blame on somebody else, and he doesn't own it for himself. That's a, another way, that's a sneaky way to kind of hide our sin. If you see this anywhere, you see it in siblings. Right? The brother and sister, they start fighting, and you walk into the room, and the parents are like, okay, tell me what happened. Well, he did what he did. He smiled at me first. <laughs> smiled at you first, right? It's, it's a tactic of blame shifting and hiding your sin so you're not culpable. You see this sexually even in the context of marriage where it's like, well, I looked at porn because my wife's not giving me what I need in the bedroom. It's hiding. That's blame shifting. You're blaming her or him. It can work the other way around. You're blaming that person because of your own sin to make yourself feel better. Vicki Deemer, who you saw on the video, and I would just really encourage you guys, I mean, that sexual wholeness conference by Jay Stringer, um, man, if you can get there, get there. Uh, we're taking our whole family there, our teenage kids and everything, because we're just going like, man, this is gonna be really, really helpful for us. So I would just encourage you to do that. Again, the details are on the app. Come ask me if you have more questions about that. But Vicki Deemer, talking about this idea of hiding our sin and blame shifting, listen to what she says. She says, when I make others responsible for my choices, when I justify my actions because of what somebody else did first, when I minimize or ignore the impact of my behavior on others, when I am justified because of what they did or because they also sinned, then I functionally live like I don't need Jesus. My verbal theology does not match my function. And as we look at this progression, these kicks to the shin that ultimately lead to death and they ultimately lead uh, to Bathsheba's sexual integrity being compromised, taken from her, it, it leads to the death of her husband, the death of Uriah, it leads to the death of her marriage and ultimately it leads to the death of her child. Because sin brings death. Every time it brings death. So as we look at these four steps towards death, for us to kind of uh, get some smelling salts in front of us to go like, okay, I need to be awakened to what level I am in these steps. Am I neglecting my duty? Am I indulging my eyes? Am I abusing my power or am I hiding my sin? Have I cleared the history browser again on the internet as a way to cover up and hide my sin? That's a really good indicator that we need to have conversations about because if you keep going, well, I haven't gotten caught yet. That's just a very dangerous place to be. 
and we want to come out of that because ultimately you're leading towards your death and the death of others and the destruction of others. This is the full weight of sin that we see. So let's talk about three steps to freedom in the midst of these three steps to death. And again, the, the reason it's three steps to freedom and not three steps to life is because, again, sin always brings death. It's a natural consequence because of our selfishness and our sin. But know that we can get freedom even in the midst of death. So what do we see in our story? Um, three steps for us to be aware of uh, on this track towards freedom. The first is to be exposed by God's word. To be exposed by God's word. We see this happening in the life of David as Nathan is the prophet, brings the word of God to David to the forefront. Nathan does this backdoor approach that's just beautiful. He doesn't come straight at him and say, David, I know what you did because David has already been covering up. He's had a track record of covering up. If he comes at him that way, David's probably going to push back and continue to hide, maybe have Nathan killed. We saw earlier Nathan really listens to the Lord as the prophet of the Lord. He hears from him. So I'm assuming that David... In his sin, Nathan is listening to the Lord, and the Lord says, here's how I want you to approach David. Nathan does that so that David is not defensive. He doesn't realize he's talking about him, and David implicates himself. Augustine says it this way. He says, to cut away the diseased tissue in David's heart and to heal the wound there, Nathan used David's tongue as the For David, God's word came through a prophet. He gets exposed to the truth and the reality through the prophet of Nathan. But for us, it might come through the reading of the scriptures, through a sermon, through an interaction and a rebuke from a friend that uses the sermon, that we would open ourselves up to what the word of God says and fully expose ourselves to the truth so that we can learn how to get healed. Hebrews 14, 12, 13 says it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, for it must give an account. This is what God's word does to us. It lays us bare, and like a good surgeon with a scalpel, you can do major damage with God's word, or you can do healing. God's word. And we need to be exposed to God's word for our steps towards freedom. That's the only way we're going to actually get life is going, okay, what are we to do that we would expose ourselves fully vulnerable to God's word? And you can hide from people all day long in your sin, but you cannot hide from God. It's clear from the text, you can't. And God's not going to let you hide. If you're one of his kids, he won't let you hide. He's going to come after you because he cares about you. He's going like, this is a cancer that is eating you from the inside out. And I'm not going to let it continue to destroy you. I'm going to come in as a surgeon and I'm going to cut you open. And getting cut open is painful. But ultimately, it's meant for our healing and our good, for the good of others. What love and grace that the Lord sends Nathan to David. He doesn't have to do that at all. He could just end David's life, but in his grace, he sends him Nathan. And being confronted with your sin, it never feels good. It doesn't feel like love. It actually feels really rough and really hard. But it's actually an invitation to accept what God is freely giving, which is grace. 
So we need to be exposed to God's word if we're going to have steps towards freedom. The second thing is we need to be helped by God's people. We see that in a text as Nathan comes to David as one of God's people. He challenges David. He hears David's confession, and then he reassures David in the midst of this conversation. David doesn't say when he gets exposed to what Nathan is talking about. He doesn't say, well, okay, I'll just pray about it. Give me a couple days. No, he confesses in the moment. And there's something about when you get called out in your sin and you let it hit you like a Mack truck and you just own it and you confess it to other people, you're moving away from hiding it. And we need that from each other. There's something about confessing to God, which again is good and right and rightly ordered, but to confess to people, there's power in your words, in admitting your sin. It's on the road to freedom in the midst of that. James 5.16 says it this way, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confessing your sin out loud to another brother or sister in Christ is a huge step towards freedom that often we neglect because we go, oh, it's just me and God. I'll figure it out between God. and You won't. You won't figure it out. You need help. You need another human, one of God's family to come alongside you and listen and care for you. And that's what Nathan does of David's life. And even in this story, man, it's, it's interesting to just go like, I think personally I go like, where are, the, where are the Nathans in my story that I'm just ignoring? I'm not listening to. I'm going, they don't know. They don't know what kind of pressure I'm under. Or they don't know this or they don't know that. Like, who are the Nathans that God has strategically placed in your life going like, hey, I'm concerned about this for you. I care about you. I see this pattern happening, and I don't want it to happen, and I've prayed about it, and I feel like I need to say this as awkward as it is for me to say, and it would be easier to say nothing. What do you do with those people in your life? May we be people that give permission to our brothers and sisters to call us out to see things that we can't see because we're blindsided. We need to listen to the Nathans in our life. So again, how do we take these steps towards freedom? Number one. We need to get exposed to God's word. Number two, we need to be helped by God's people. And then number three, we need to be welcomed by God's grace. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, that's not a word of condemnation. It's a word of invitation. That's what the gospel should produce in us. A word of invitation to come to the table even in the midst of your sin. And we see this in the journey, like David's sin, his behavior, is way worse than Saul. He does what he does to Bathsheba, and then he kills her husband, and then he covers it up. It's way worse in behavior than Saul. Saul, like, disobeys the prophet, doesn't quite do all the things. He's kind of grading on a curve. But what happens when he gets confronted in his sin by the prophet? Saul just kind of goes, well, I don't know, like it's not that bad. And he kind of gives him, well, maybe I sinned. And he kind of gives him what he wants to hear. But there's no heart change. There's no repentance. David clearly turns from his sin and goes, you're right. Not only from this passage, but again, from Psalm 51, from, uh, from Psalm 32, we see David's heart soft and broken. Psalm 51, he says, wash me, have mercy on me. That's the difference as he welcomes God's grace into his life. And again, if we think God is just a judge or just a king, you'll never come to him with your sin. 
because you'll be too worried about the consequences. You'll be hiding your sin. And God is a judge, and God is our king, but you know he's also our heavenly father. And he asks us to come to him in our mess with our mess. As we continue in Hebrews, that next section after those verses we read in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And as true and as good as it feels to, to come to God in our darkest moments of sin that we see David's darkest moments of sin here, sin always leads to death. That doesn't change and we see the consequences in the story. Now I want you to imagine, even in the midst of the death, imagine you're Uriah's mom. Imagine you're Bathsheba's dad. And what happens to your daughter? What happens to your son? And you hear what gets passed down through the grapevine that Nathan comes to David and confronts him in his sin. And what does Nathan say to David? You know what? You've been forgiven. You surely shall not die. How do you feel if you're Bathsheba's dad in that moment? You go, what? Where's the justice for my daughter, for what you did to her? Where's the justice for my son, Uriah, that has been faithfully fighting for you? There doesn't seem to be any justice. And you go, that's not okay. That's not okay. Can you feel that? What if you heard a judge say to a sex offender and a murderer, you're forgiven, you can go. You go, there's no justice in that. And sin, doing our own thing in our own way, always leads to death. Always it leads to pain, it leads to hurt, it leads to shame, it leads to death and destruction because of the result of our sin. But this story, like every story in the Bible, points to the ultimate story and the ultimate climax of the story found in Jesus. That we can have hope in the midst of our story. Listen, you guys, like, I don't know how you heard about Christianity how you got brought into this faith, or even if you're investigating in the moment, maybe you got sold this kind of version of Christianity that like, you know what, you, you've sinned, you've made mistakes, and because of that sin, you're, you've got a gap from God, and you need Jesus to fill that gap, and sometimes we kind of talk about sin like behavior, like watching R-rated movies, or gossiping, and those things are, they can be sin, they can be bad, but Jesus didn't go to the cross for those pity little things. He went to the cross for the worst of humanity, for death, for destruction, for sexual assault. All these things. Where's the justice? The justice is on the cross. What Jesus did as the nails goes into his hands, as the nail goes into his feet, that's where justice lies. That's where Bathsheba fathers go, okay, there's going to be justice put on somebody. And the somebody is Jesus. And he doesn't deserve it. And he's free of all guilt. But he takes that shame that we deserve because of our sin. And he takes it on the cross for us. 
and you might be dealing with some secret sin that is hidden and you think it's way worse than it is or maybe it's really, really bad and you're not bringing it to light because you go, man, I don't know what the consequences are and you're going like Jesus, what he did on the cross. If you're a follower of Jesus, it wasn't enough for what I did. That's what you're doing in that moment when you're hiding your sin from whoever you need to confess it to. You're saying what Jesus did on the cross isn't enough. I have to work my way back into some better way of doing this thing. I keep messing up, but I can fix it. You cannot fix it. And Jesus went to the cross for your sin. If we understand that and we confess that, there's still consequences to our sin. There's still consequences to our action that are painful, but we begin to live in freedom. As we bring those dark things into light, we begin to get healing. And then we all need healing in these areas because sin is just heavy, it's destructive, it's gnarly, it's just terrible. And may we be people that recognize the power and the progression of our sin and what it costs people. May we be people that come out of hiding through confession to one another, bringing dark things into light and we would be a community that welcomes that and may we be people that eat and drink at the table deeply, at the freedom offered to us this morning. There's freedom. There's freedom in the cross. Let's pray. Father, would you give us freedom? We continue to run down these steps of neglecting our duty and indulging our eyes and abusing our power. We hide our sin. We cover it up thinking we can clean it up. And we can. Would you give us opportunities, Lord, to bring things into light, to be exposed by the power of your word, the power of your people, and the power of your grace, just like we see David do. And we need your help this morning to do this. God's sin is heavy. It is not something to be trifled with. And again, we think it's something little. And the enemy is just setting us up for our downfall. Would you help us see that Jesus took the uppercut for us at the cross, that we can come freely if we follow you to your table this morning, that we can confess freely and bring our sin into light. We ask that you would help us this morning do this. Pray that this weight would, it would, it would sit on us appropriately so, and that we would take steps of healing and we ask that you would do it in us and through us this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.